Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. Our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We bring you weekly topics and thought-provoking guests to get you to stop, reflect and think about what it means to be a leader in a modern world. Our aim is to help you become the leader you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Please enjoy the show. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. We're greatly honoured today to be joined by Dr. Olivia Ong. Dr. Olivia is a life and business coach who specialises in helping medical doctors with a focus on avoiding burnout. And I'm sure that everyone in the audience would recognise the great work pressure that people in the medical profession are always under and that burnout is a very real thing for them. We'll discuss that today, but we'll also branch out to discuss what that might mean for leaders in other fields. Dr. Olivia is the founder and CEO of an organization called The Heart-Centered Doctor, and she's the author of an upcoming book called The Heart-Centeredness of Medicine, which is due for release on the upcoming RUOK Day. And we'll speak more about what RUOK Day means during the interview. So without any further ado, uh, Dr. Olivier Ong, welcome to the show. Please say hello to our audience and tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to be with us today. So thanks, Mick, for having me. I'm Dr. Olivier Ong. I'm a pain physician based here in Melbourne, Australia. And a bit about my background. So I've been a pain physician now in Melbourne for about three years. And prior to that, I've been a rehabilitation physician. So I actually subspecialize in pain medicine. But what led me to form my company, uh, the Heart Center Doctor, was of quite a few, I guess, personal stories and also insights and observations that I've seen as a pain physician here in Australia. So when I was a junior doctor in 2008, I was involved in a car accident. So I sustained a traumatic spinal cord injury which led me to become a paraplegic. So I was wheelchair bound for a couple of years. I was not able to walk uh, and I had to travel to the United States in San Diego, in fact, to a particular rehabilitation center called Project Walk. And this particular center helps spinal cord injury survivors walk again. And I spent about three or four years there along with my husband. We relocated from Melbourne to San Diego for a couple of years to purely focus on my rehabilitation And luckily, I managed to walk again, but I still have deficits from the spinal cord injury. Spinal cord injury is a lifelong condition. And um, unfortunately, with uh, with spinal cord injuries, there are several physical issues like um, lack of mobility, uh, bladder bowel issues. 
And that's what I've had to deal with up to this day. And in fact, a little bit uh, about uh, my professional life before my injury, I was already feeling quite burnt out, to be honest. And the injury, strangely and interestingly, made me slow down because I had to now focus on my recovery to walk, to learn to walk again. And just remembering when a baby learns to walk. And, you know, children and babies are actually the best mindfulness teachers. They're so present in the moment. They don't really care what's going on around them and they just focus on what they're doing. And to me, my, my learning to walk again experience made me slow down, made me appreciate life and friendships and connections a lot more. And throughout that journey of learning to walk again, I learned a very powerful life lesson actually called self-compassion. And self-compassion essentially means in, I guess, you know, people have done research, extensive research on self-compassion, like Kirsten Neff in the U.S. have done extensive research on it. But in, to put it to your audience in a, in a simplified, I guess, version of it, it's essentially accepting that, you know, you are human, you have imperfections, and, you know, and then you're just ready to you know, accept yourself and then move forward. Essentially, that's what it means in a nutshell. It's self-love and self-acceptance in, 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 uh, in summary. And that's what I learned in Project Walk. I learned to accept my injury for what it was. Literally, it was really difficult for me to transition from being a healthcare professional in the medical workforce to a patient in the healthcare system. That was a big identity adjustment to be honest, and I managed to eventually accept that. And I learned to thrive in, I guess, in that identity. I learned about personal resilience, post-traumatic growth, and I grew and expanded as an individual. But when I went back to Australia about in about 2012, I went back to the workforce. And again, you know, back to the usual pressures of medical workforce, which is lots increased physician workload, System structure, not great. And it's been an issue for like 20 years and nothing's really done about it. And I'll probably touch a bit about our discussion later about what's happening right now in the physician realm because of COVID. So that really adds a lot um, in terms of burnout and, and moral injury and lots of other interesting topics that we'll touch upon later. So I experienced that. So not only I have to deal with my injury when I entered the workforce again, I had to deal with the demands of the workforce. Of, of being a medical practitioner, and I had a, and my son was three at that time, so I had the additional burden of motherhood. And before I knew it, I had a severe burnout experience in 2019, which I had to take several months off work. I just couldn't get out of bed one day; literally couldn't get out of bed physically. And it's because having to juggle all those, you know, all the balls and being on the hamster wheel, just I just like uh, I, it, it exhausted me. I just crumbled. When I got back to my to work after the three months off work um, to deal with my burnout, you know, I had to see my GP, saw a, psych, saw a psychologist for a brief, brief period of time. So I got got back to work, but something was still missing. You know, um, like I describe burnout as a, a deep wounding to the soul. Like physically, you might be all right, but there's something in the soul that has suffered, and there's that deep black hole, like I talk about. And for, for a while, I was still trying to search for answers. Being, you know, an academic, of course, I'm going to look for answers, right? Like, 
buy lots of books on Amazon, looking up on burnout, reading articles on burnout, but I couldn't find a satisfactory answer, I guess, to that particular problem. And then COVID happened last year, which also forced me to slow down. And I actually got a coach to coach me through my blind spots. And that helped me, I guess, manage my burnout a lot better. And because of the transformation I had as a, as a coachee, and I decided I would like to do that for my peers, and I became a leadership coach for doctors. And uh, I'm also a business coach right now as well, just purely because you know, I want to help my medical peers recover and prevent burnout in their, not only their personal lives, in their professional lives, like their career and business. So that led me to form my company, The Heart Centered Doctor, and which also led me to write my book about physician burnout. But most importantly, I, I feel the reason why I formed my, my, I set up my business was because I've just seen way too many of my peers burn out and not seeking help. And I'm sure this is across not just the medical workforce, it's across you know, leaders, the leaders that you work with, leaders in not only the corporate workspace, law, any industry, even parents right now who have had to homeschool their kids for like the last 18 months, especially in Australia or Melbourne, where I am, where we've been, we're still in lockdown 200 days later. And yeah, it's it's just burnout is not just a medical workforce issue. Um, although the COVID has, has obviously made that situation worse for our frontline healthcare workers, but it's also affected, you know, global globally, people as a whole, you know, collective. And more so leaders where I feel not just in the healthcare space, also, I guess, in, in other various spaces, that not only they have to deal with, you know, work structure, organizational, they have to deal with their own internal stresses. Leaders also have to homeschool if they're parents, and they have to juggle their work and then, and then juggle managing their team. So really, that's, you know, that's a lot of stress and a lot of um, uh, workplace burden. And hence, if, I'm not surprised if they're also very burnt out right here, right now. And suddenly we are talking about the, you know, in America where they're kind of seeing the tail end of COVID or what, or what it seems like the tail end of COVID at the moment. Um, they're dealing with what we call post-COVID stress syndrome. So let me specifically refer to, I guess, the, med, the health, frontline healthcare workers. Just a bit of observations of what happened last year. So these frontline healthcare workers have been isolated from their family for extensive period of time. And as leaders, you know, they, they need, you know, as leaders, we need connection. We need, and that's how we thrive as a, as humans, right? We need connection. Unfortunately, these workers, healthcare workers haven't had that, you know, that lug, that privilege or luxury. I, I know they were just trying to battle COVID, dealing with the pandemic at the front line. And not only that, they was, they had to see patients, colleagues, family pass away in front of them every day, day in, day out. They have to make life and death decisions, literally. They have to decide who gets to be safe in the COVID situation, who doesn't. And that's really quite a very I don't know, difficult decision. If you, if you, you know, Definitely a very difficult decision for them to part, like triage who gets to be safe and who doesn't. And that constant, how do you say, conscious um, Affliction has affected their have affected their moral self, and as a result, they're beginning to exhibit trauma symptoms at the moment, beginning to exhibit what looks like PTSD, 
um, they call it post-COVID stress syndrome or post-COVID traumatic stress syndrome. So there's a lot of research and topics. Now they're, they're talking about academics and researchers are doing lots of research about it and surveying lots of frontline healthcare workers and what the experience of dealing with the pandemic. Um, not only that, and there's a lot of anxiety, depression in healthcare workers, and 30% of them have actually decided just to leave the profession altogether. So you can imagine make what this would do to the medic to the medical and nursing workforce in 10 to 20 years. There'll be lack lack of nurses, lack of doctors. So where do we go from there? So that's what's happening right now in the US. So they're starting to talk about it. There's a mega global health trend. Doctors, nurses just leaving the the work, the profession altogether. There's so many things there to unpack, Olivia. That was a that was a lot, but I'd like to go through a few of the things that you said there and and dig a little bit deeper for our audience and think it through. So some of the things that caught my attention. You mentioned about seeing the world through the eyes of children, and that children are very mindful. They're very good at being in the moment, but they're also very good at looking at things without judgment and without any kind of bias. So we're not necessarily born with bias, but bias is something that develops over time. And I want people in the audience at home to think about that, looking through the looking at the world through the eyes of a child being in the moment without judgment and without bias. I want to then build on your experience when you've had that life-changing event in 2008 and you're converting now from medical practitioner into being patient. What did you learn from that about being in the moment, about bias and about uh, not having judgment? Okay. So how I'm going to touch on that question will be based on my personal experience first and how I, how those things, those factors have actually, I've been, uh, I guess, you know, as, as a doctor with a disability, I guess I've been the, unfortunately the um, target of unconscious bias from my own medical peers. So I'll probably touch a bit about that. And also how I learned to be more mindful because as I've touched upon with my personal story, that journey to learn to walk again was a was certainly my first experience of mindfulness. And because I was so present in that moment of learning to walk again, which I had to, because if I don't learn how to walk properly, I'm going to fall down and hurt myself, right? That's, that's obviously at the back of my mind when I learned to walk again. Initially, I had lots of fears of, oh gosh, what if I learn to, okay, I, the trainers are eventually, you know, going to, not be there from, with me to train with me all the time, right? They're going to let me go and do my own um, for my own recovery program. But I remember in the early stages, I was really quite cautious and very fearful. But I think being my, being present and being mindful just taught me not to be scared anymore. And that, that's why I think being present, it made me enjoy that journey to learn to walk again, much more meaningful, much more joyful, and when I remember when I took my first steps, and I know my trainer just said, you know, I'm just going to not, you know, support you anymore in terms of physically supporting. Like initially they had to like hold my 
hips or hold my arms because I just needed support. You know, neurologically, I was still trying to walk like, you know, like a tod- like a baby when they're first starting to take their first few steps is a bit wobbly. I was exactly like that. I was so scared to fall down. I don't know, because I, maybe because I'm a, a doctor and I'm always thinking about worst case scenarios. Like, what if I break? What if I fall down if I break my hip, hit my head? You know, I always, you know, all these fears were coming. But throughout the journey of learning to walk again, I begin to let go of those fears because I was just being in that present moment. I was enjoying the journey, even though physically it was tiring because I was working out and training five hours each day, Monday to Friday. It was like a boot camp, to be honest. And I've never had to do such a boot camp ever. Like at the most prior to my injury, I was attend, I was going to the gym once or twice a week for half an hour. That was it, you know, like that was it. <laughs> but this, you know, even though it was physically quite challenging for me to learn to walk again, but boy, I enjoyed that journey. And it made me appreciate life so much more. It made me uh, realize that there's, a more, there's more to life than just, you know, all these personal, uh, external achievements that we all strive for. And I realized that internal transformation was probably the best gift that the injury actually taught me. And I think as leaders, um, you know, we can't change the, sometimes we just can't change the organization. We just can't, sorry. <laughs> we just can't change the organization. But, you know, like in terms of structures and systems, which have been there for years, but as leaders, we can change what happens in our inside world. That's the thing. And I know I've, I've come across medical colleagues who say, I'm just too busy, you know, I'm just too busy running my team. I, you know, I, these are medical leaders. I'm too busy running my team. You know, I just don't have the luxury to, you know, look after myself. Similarly, I'm sure in the other workspaces like corporate law, any, any other industries, they'll probably come up with that kind of um, rationale, like why I'm, I'm just too busy, you know. I, for example, like I, Ariana Huffington is my greatest one of my greatest virtual mentors. Uh, as we know, Ariana Huffington is quite a, a, a very big advocate on burnout in general. And I remember her saying, because you know, she, she talked about her, but her own burnout experience where she was so burnt out that she actually collapsed and then hit her face, her face against her desk and she broke her cheekbones. That's how exhausted she was physically and emotionally. And I, I always remember that and how she got back to where she is right now, such a big proponent of um, and advocate of um, burnout. In fact, she's got so many books on sleep revolution and burnout and a few other things. And and I remember her talking about yeah, because she works with big CEOs, big companies, and then and she, you know when she tries to coach them or mentor them, the first thing they they tell her is like, I don't have time for to look after my well being. I'm looking after a big corporation. I'm Doing, I'm doing all these things like I don't even have five minutes to go for a walk or breathe. And, and I think she meant she talks about how to them um, how, yeah, uh, you know, you can't. Yeah, you have a big corporation, but if you don't look after yourself, you can't be there to serve your people and your organization. And I think she goes on in greater details uh, and, you know, talking about box breathing because she does a lot of uh, breath work. She does a lot of mindfulness. And I'm pretty sure that's a big part of her mentoring program for the, these big CEOs. And I think as leaders, um, we can transform our inner world through many tools. We, yeah, like mindfulness is one, breathe, breathing exercises to calm our nervous system when we are internally stressed, certainly. And many other 
leadership tools that we can harness. There's just so many out there that, are, that this obviously interview can we can cover all of them, but we have all the internal tools to do it. And I think as leaders, we have to look after our well-being. We have, we must, we have to. I don't, I don't really buy the excuse of oh, I don't have time to look after my well-being. Really, we, we, it's it's not an excuse. And I know, you know, it's quite cliche to talk about the oxygen mask thing, <laughs> to be honest, because we hear about self-care, oxygen, put your oxygen mask first. But especially in healthcare where I'm in, it's an ocean. It's actually an ocean of healthcare. And we need, a sc- you know, like scuba divers, they have the oxygen tank behind. That's what we need. We need to be there because we, we'll be underwater, we'll be submerged, we'll be challenged. But we need to have the scuba tank all the time. And that's how I see it. I guess back to your question about bias and like children being quite mindful and curious. And I think as leaders, we have to have this element of curiosity. And I think because of our because of our day-to-day pressures in dealing with our workload as a leader, we kind of get stuck in that autopilot, which is not mindfulness at all. If you think about it, being autopilot means you just like tick boxes on the checklist saying, oh yeah, I've done, I've done the meeting. I've spoken to the stakeholders. I've done this, I've done that. And before you know it, it's evening time and you've got, and then you're like, okay, I got to prepare dinner for the kids, blah, blah, blah. And then it becomes another tick box, to be honest. And I guess mindfulness and is involves a lot of being present and also involves a lot of curiosity. And I think if we adopt that mindset as a kid with that curiosity mindset, I think it will serve us really well. You know, for example, let's say if your team members come to you, you know, one of them is burnt out because you will, as a leader, you will not only have to acknowledge that your early warning signs of burnout, you will have to ignore, you have to kind of observe what your team members are at, whether they're burning out as well. So when you see a a team member close to burnout, you have a conversation with them and you say, you know, um, that's where it comes, you know, when we talk about are you okay there, that's another way to check in with your team members. And as I'm speaking about curiosity, one of the ways is also to be curious about your team member. You know, like they could, you know, you, you will see signs of early early signs of burnout, like they are just not, one of them, they are not performing. They're becoming quite cynical. There's a personality change and they're taking lots of sick leave, I guess, from work. That's one of the early signs. And I, I want, I encourage leaders out there to, to just adopt this curiosity mindset rather than starting to judge your team member and all the harsh criticism, which sometimes, unfortunately, some leaders tend to do that. I have to acknowledge in the medical space, there's a lot of that. I'm sure in other spaces, there, there can be such leaders. But I want to encourage leaders out there to adopt a curiosity mindset. And yeah, that's based on our role models, children um, as being greatest having that curiosity mindset and touching a bit about bias. We see this a lot in medicine. If I want to put it in context, for example, but yeah, as I said, you know, I've got my own experience of having been through other people's biases against myself because I have a disability and I was transitioning back to the workforce, um, you know, because I've been away from work for about a couple of years and they're judging whether I was able to, Perform to my usual competency um, where I used to be as a doctor, but I obviously, you know, managed to kind of call those biases because I learned to, obviously I had to subspecialize, take exams and the whole, you know, physician journey. And now I'm a qualified rehab and pain physician. So I managed to squash those biases, but 
one of the biases that we see in medicine is, you know, when patients come to us, patients who don't listen to our advice, to be honest, we can form our own biases too as doctors. And that's probably a thing that we shouldn't be doing. And I'm sure that biases can be in many different ways, can be biases against you know, people not, like, for example, I just alluded to patients not taking our advice. We get we form some, you know, preconceived biases about that, like, or because maybe they're too busy trying to, what you know, to seek, like in my industry, pain medicine, they're, all, they're, they're too busy just trying to take their opioid medications or something, to be honest. I can say that. Or they're just, and then they're neglecting their family, their health and blah, blah, you know, like all that kind of things come up. But biases can occur when this age bias gender bias there's also body habitus biases too and i'm i'm pretty sure there are doctor there are healthcare professionals out there who form biases against people who are overweight you know like there's so many all these unconscious biases that we don't talk about but we, but we need to talk about it because it certainly affects healthcare decisions you know in the medical industry healthcare industry and i'm and biases out there, um, not just in the medical industry, as I said, gender and age is definitely the big big biases that I can think of. And as leaders, it probably in the non-medical space, that can certainly come up. And especially if biases against parents who are working, I guess, trying their best to manage parenthood and work, and I'm sure there are biases against them too. So yeah, those those are my basic observations of biases in the in both industries, the medical and non-medical industries, age, gender, and parents, uh, working parents. These are the three that I can think of. So for the audience at home, it's something that you know that we're very passionate about here at the Leadership Project, and and that is for you to become aware of your own unconscious bias and to make sure that it's not influencing the way that you treat people the way that you view people and certainly not uh, influence your decision-making, whether that be conscious or unconscious bias. Coming back to something you said earlier, Olivia, so um, you were mentioning about the cliché about the oxygen marsh. I guess it is a a, a cliché, but it rings true for many people. If I could pivot that in the medical profession and just say that a doctor can't help anyone if they're collapsed on the floor or, as you said in Ariana's uh, example, uh, not a medical doctor, but if she's got her head collapsed on her desk, she's not helping anyone. And you mentioned that doctors feel that they don't have time to look after themselves. I would say that they don't have time not to. Exactly. For those very reasons. Mm. Yeah, I guess if, if doctors can, you know, they can't look after their own well-being, they're not going to be good to anybody, really, to themselves, to their patients, to their loved ones. And now we can extrapolate that to leadership. If a leader exactly. is not looking after themselves, there's no way that they can look after their team with the right level mm-hmm. of care and duty. You mentioned before self-compassion. Let's dig into that a little bit more. What does self-compassion mean to you? Self-compassion to me, there are three pillars that I speak about with self-compassion. So interestingly, the first pillar is mindfulness. You know how we've been talking about mindfulness and everything? That's exactly, that's the first pillar. And I'll, I'll expand in, in, into the three pillars of, after this um, brief outline of what it actually is. First pillar is mindfulness. 
Second pillar is connection to self and others. And third, third pillar, which I think is the hardest pillar to kind of learn as a muscle, is self-acceptance and self-kindness. This is, I, I think, the hardest, and I'll go into it. And coming back to first pillar, that's mindfulness. We spoke at great lengths about mindfulness, just being present in that moment, being curious. But one other component of mindfulness and self-compassion is actually acknowledging in that present moment that you are suffering. And leaders, we suffer, as leaders, we suffer a lot of internal stress. And we always try to numb it down because we're leaders, right? We have to put up a front, a facade, sort of up a facade. We have to pretend that we get it, we, are, we have it all together, but inside we're crumbling. And some leaders are probably experiencing this right now as they're trying to juggle many, um, many things at the moment and, and they are in their many balls in their court at the moment. So I think as leaders, my, this first pillar of mindfulness means that they have to acknowledge that internally they are suffering. They are close to burnout or they are already, some of them are already at burnout. That's the first step, just acknowledging that they are suffering at that present moment. And second pillar, as I've talked about, is connecting to self and others. You know, like a lot of um, doctors in, and many other healthcare professionals are so burnt out that they can't even see that they have hope. They, have, they feel helpless and stuck. And I'm sure a lot of leaders, not just in the medical space, just feel stuck and helpless. And one of the things, and Ariana Huffington talks a lot about this, because she deals with a lot of burnt out CEOs in, in who she works with. And one of the, one of the ways she connects with, with them, which is talking about this pillar connection, is through storytelling. And she talks about um, Marcus Aurelius, that she, she sends them a free PDF on Marcus Aurelius poems. And this, this emperor, I think he was an emperor. <laughs> yeah, he's, he spent, I don't know, like she's mentioned about 90 days dealing with the plague. Um, yeah, that was at that time, obviously, in that context. And he's probably burnt out, to be honest, dealing with 90 days of plague of some sort. And he wrote beautiful poems about it. So burnout has always been talked about, even in Marcus Aurelius' time, you see. And Irina Huffington actually sends out poems written by him to all the burnt out CEOs and organization leaders that she works with. And that's how she connects with them. It's true storytelling. And similarly, we bring to this, you know, this context with leaders in the modern age. I think connection with storytelling is one way to, you know, kind of explain to them what the second pillar is because they wouldn't understand what connection to self and others means when they are burnt out. And, and similarly, you know, I'll be telling my, if I were to work with a medical leader who's burnt out right now, I'll be talking about my own personal story. And I'll probably introduce Ariana's story, you know, like because she's obviously a great storyteller, as we know. She created Huffington Post and things like that. But, you know, yeah, storytelling will be a great way to connect with yourself and other people. I think that's how we start. When we're so burnt out, we can't see anything else. Storytelling, it always touches that deep inner being, stories. And But I guess to extrapolate that after the storytelling, it's starting to take baby steps or action steps to connect with yourself and others. And this is what we've been talking about all this while, that as leaders, we need to work on our inner world, our inner transformation, and that's what transformational leadership is all about because a lot of times we can't change what's happening in our organization. Like lead as work, leaders working in organization, systems can be dysfunctional, to be honest. And they just like, I'm stuck in this helpless system. Like I just can't, no matter how much I do, I still feel like I'm stuck as a leader. Like I can't 
help my team members and I'm struggling to talk to the people up, you know, up there and I'm kind of in the middle. What do I do? Organization's gonna not gonna change, but the inner transformation, which involves connection to self and others, really has to start from ourselves as leaders. And lastly, the last pillar I talked about self-acceptance and self-kindness. Boy, this is the hardest. Because I, I feel as leaders, we are so used to putting other people's needs first, which we do. And as healthcare professionals, we as healthcare leaders, they have to do that, putting team members' needs above them, putting patients' needs above them. And lo and behold, of course, our needs are last. And when we allow self-kindness, when we allow kindness into our heart, that's hard because you're so used to putting other people first. And when you start to put out yourself first, is it's really challenging. Well, I, I talk about this concept called backdraw. I'm not a firefighter, but I know firefighters out there who, you know, when they try to open that door, when there's all that smoke and oxygen has built up inside, when they open that door, boo, they, they've experienced this gush of difficult fire sensation and just this blow of air that's so uncomfortable. And that's akin to what this third pillar is. And that's how leaders will probably start to experience when they start to do this practice of self-kindness, which is the last pillar. Very child, very hard. Easy, easy on theory, because you're like, you know, I'll just be kind of myself, right? But the actual muscle and practice is really challenging. And I experienced that firsthand and my clients experienced that firsthand themselves. But it's like a muscle. We have, you know, to build up biceps or triceps or whatever. We have to, you know, we work out in the gym how many times a week for how this period of time. This self-kindness muscle, this self-acceptance muscle just takes time. And we just have to learn to be kind to ourselves and accept that it's going to just take a long time to build. And once you master the three pillars, that's the self-compassionate leader, self-compassionate healthcare leader, self-compassionate CEO leader, self-compassionate lawyer leader, many other, and many, many other industries. So that's how I see it as self-compassion and that's compassionate leadership as well. So that's essentially that in the, my, my own take on that on self-compassion in leadership. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Olivia. And I think it is something for us all to think about uh, in the audience and to consider about your own self-awareness of your own mental and physical well-being and being able to be self-compassionate about your own state and looking after yourself uh, is something that's absolutely essential if you're then to turn around and also connect with others and, and to look after them. You've been listening to The Leadership Project with your host, Mick Spears. Join us each week as we bring you more thought-provoking guests. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you are informed of all future episodes. If you are enjoying the show, it would be greatly appreciated if you can leave us a review and tell your friends about us. You are also welcome to join the Leadership Project Facebook community group where we have an active conversation going about all things leadership. Please do take care, look out for each other and always remember to challenge the status quo. Thank you 
you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo, and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together. Thank you.